Do you get tired of hearing the same old intros to podcast episodes? Me too. Hi, I'm not Jen. I'm Jessica, and I'm in rural East Panama. Jen has just created a new way for listeners to record the introductions to podcast episodes, and I got to test it out. There's no other resource out there quite like your parenting mojo, which doesn't just tell you about the latest scientific research on parenting and child development, but puts it in context for you as well, so you can decide whether and how to use this new information. If you'd like to get new episodes in your inbox, along with a free infographic on 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one, sign up at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe and come over to our free Facebook group to continue the conversation about this episode. You can also thank Jen for this episode by donating to keep the podcast ad-free by going to the page for this or any other episode on yourparentingmojo.com. If you'd like to start a conversation with someone about this episode or know someone who would find it useful, please forward it to them. Over time, you're going to get sick of hearing me read this intro as well, so come and record one yourself. You can read from a script she's provided or have some real fun with it and write your own. Just go to yourparentingmojo.com and click read the intro. I can't wait to hear yours. And welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. And today we are going to be talking about reward and punishment systems in school. And we're here with Denise, who is actually the community manager for Your Parenting Mojo. Welcome, Denise. It's great to see you. Hello. It's nice to be here. So this interview came out, or interview slash episode, I guess, <laughs> came about in a, a bit of a different way than they usually do. I had decided to tackle this topic and I mentioned to you on one of our weekly calls that I was thinking about doing it. And you said, let me tell you about my experience. <laughs> and so I said, oh, that sounds like a more fun and interesting way of doing it to have it be a conversation rather than have it be an episode. I narrate. And so Denise is going to share a little bit about some of the things that she has seen in her children's schools related to rewards and punishments. And I'm going to share a bit on the research that I've done. And then Denise has some questions, some of which, frankly, are not really answerable by the research, but we're going to do the best that we can to get to some answers that will help parents to figure out how to address these reward and punishment systems in school. And I also just want to make sure that I share before we get started that I've actually produced a one-page resource for you to learn more about these systems, to share about them with other parents, to share about them with teachers that is research-based. So every statement in it is grounded in research. And so you can download that off the episode page and that's available at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash reward and punishment. So... So Denise, why don't you kick us off and maybe you can tell us about your decision to go into public school in general and this particular school, you know, wh why did you pick this school rather than other schools that were available to you? Okay. Well, so public school in general was actually, I don't know if you would remember this, but I did reach out to you years ago about homeschooling because I was thinking about doing that for my daughter. The thing is, in Spain, where I live, it's not illegal, but it's unconstitutional. So there's kind of like this weird thing about it. And we live in the center and most of the homeschooling family groups I know of are outside of the city. And so if I were to homeschool, I would have been very, like, I would have been by myself. And my daughter is very social. Like, so it wouldn't, like, she would have been very sad about homeschooling. 
So we didn't homeschool, and the reason why I chose to bring them to a public school, well, the the number one reason was honestly because for me, and you know, if you speak to my husband, he'll have a different reason. But for me, it's that we couldn't afford it, and. You know, if I wanted to bring them to a private school, it would mean me working full time. It's really, it really helped us really, really grow as parents, as a family, and just accept that things that did deeply resonated with us make sense for our family. And uh, being able to have that community, even on just online, as we actually are most surrounded by people who are traditionally parent. Uh, is just amazing. The parenting membership is now open for enrollment, but only until midnight Pacific on Wednesday, May 15th. We have sliding scale pricing and a 100% money back guarantee. Join now to get access to everything you need to make the change that you want to see in your family life at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash parenting membership. And it just like, it just didn't make sense to me to be working all these hours so that they go to a private school when Technically, supposedly, they're perfectly good public schools in our neighborhood as well. And it just, you know, it's it's just it's just the choice that we made where, like, I wanted to be with my kids. I didn't want to be working so that they could go to, like, a nice fancy school. So that's why public school. And the reason why we chose the particular public school that they're in right now is because it's a seven-minute walk from our house. That is very convenient in the mornings. And that's really the main reason because it was, it kind of ticked the boxes. It was a public school. It wasn't bilingual, which I didn't want because that's a whole nother thing. And it was close to our house. The thing about this public school is that most of the families that I know, most of the families who are mostly Spanish, they choose not to bring their kids to that school where we have a family who live right beside the school and bring the kids to another school because of kind of like the, I guess, is stigma the right word for it that the school has because the school is full of families from the Philippines, like me, or from South America. So we... It was actually, I don't, and I don't know, Jennifer, I told you, but it was like a realization for my husband when he realized that the reason why he didn't want to go to that school was because of that fear that he had because of the families that were there. And he was like, oh, that's racist. And I was like, yes. <laughs> Welcome. <Wow>. Welcome. <laughs> that's quite a moment. <laughs> it, it really was a moment. <laughs> Because, yeah. you know, he was he's very much in the there's no racism in Spain. I'm just like, mm-hmm, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that is why we we very consciously chose that school and also to kind of alleviate the fear of like, what are we doing? Bringing our kids to the school where we don't really know anyone else there. Luckily, there were other families that we know who also decided to bring their kids to that school. Yeah. Yeah. And and I remember this decision because you weren't our community manager at that point, right? You were a member in the parenting membership and the learning membership. And you reached out to me and you, you outlined some of the factors that were going into this decision. And I remember how clearly this uh, the decision that you made is aligned with your values, right? There's partly your values about spending time with your kids um, rather than working. And that's not to say that everybody should make the same decision, but that that's the decision that you had decided to make that fits with your family's values. And the other aspect of it was making a deliberate choice not to send 
your kids to the school that all the other Spanish families send their kids to and to uh, to be present in your local neighborhood school, even though it is, we, we could say, heavy air quotes, not a good school. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. 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 And so, so, uh, how long has your daughter been in that school at this point? Um, it's their second year. So both my kids are in that school. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, so tell us about how it's been going, uh, specifically related to rewards and punishments. What kind of things have you seen that made you want to do this episode with us? Yeah. Well, I think when we had that meeting, I had, it was like that same week that I had just gone to like the class meeting with Diago's teacher. So Diago is, he's five, so he's in kindergarten. I don't know if that's what translates in the American system. And I had already known coming into the class, you know, he was, he was getting out of school every day with like a very proud, with a stamp on his hand. Or if it was Friday, it was like a sticker. So I kind of already knew like, okay, this is, this is what the teacher does. What I wasn't expecting was when I entered the classroom, the very first thing I saw on the blackboard was a list of names with sad faces beside it. And, you know, a very generous friend wanting to give the teacher the benefit of the doubt said, well, maybe those kids were just sick that day. And that's why their names were on the board. And, you know, I don't know why their names were on the board. Like, I didn't ask. Uh So that could be the reason. Obviously, my assumption is that they weren't behaving and that's why they have their names on the board beside a sad face. Um, Another thing that the teacher actually pointed out during the meeting, but I chose not to see, (laughs) was a list of the kids' names kind of showing how they've been behaving. Like on the wall so that they could all see at any given moment what was, I guess, what their status was. That's on one end. That is on with one child. Yeah. yeah. And, and what about Paula? What's going on in her class? So what's going on in Paula's classroom is that they get punished. And I spoke. So this is what Paula told me. She said that sometimes, and it's happened to her maybe once or twice, where they were punished without recess. And then and then I asked her, I was like, well, what does it mean when you're punished without recess? And she's like, well, that means that they still go outside. But instead of playing, they just have to sit beside the teacher. But then I asked her teacher about it. And she very clearly said that that's not like she doesn't do that in her classroom, like with her in her classes. But there are other teachers who do work with Paula who do that. And then another thing that the teacher, I just found out this week, was and I don't know if it's maybe this week because it's almost Halloween. I have no idea. But she said that at the end of the week they'll give them she'll give them all a piece of candy. And when I when I pressed Paula a bit more about that, like why would she give you candy? Like can someone please explain to me? She said she didn't know. She just knew that at the end of mm. the week that she would get a piece of candy. And then so that's like with her homeroom teacher, I guess that would be the American way. And in with her English teacher, her English teacher said, if you are good, I guess they meet like twice a week. So if you are good the whole week, you get a sticker. And, you know, here I was thinking by good, she meant like, you know, you have like a high level of English. And I was like, okay, that's not going to be a problem for Paula. But no, that's not what she meant. <laughs> good. Um, she meant... Ah. But it's fine. Yeah. 
she meant, you know, be quiet, do your work, finish your work, mm-hmm. don't bother your classmates. That's what she meant. Okay. And we were just talking before this call is probably going to have a doctor's appointment tomorrow that you weren't anticipating. So that means that she doesn't get her piece of candy. And we had this whole moment where she was crying and, and it was also because we had a doctor's appointment today. And so she arrived late for English class. And so she didn't finish the worksheet that she was supposed to do. So she didn't get the sticker today. And then tomorrow, um, because she'll probably miss school or be late for school, she's worried she's not going to get the piece of candy tomorrow. And so it was like this whole thing um, where I looked at my husband. And I was like, oh, my God, we're terrible parents. Like, you know, if you base it off of how she was crying and just very upset about this piece of candy that she wouldn't, she might not get. And my husband right. was just like, yeah, I don't even care. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> And and you also mentioned that the teacher last year yelled a lot. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So so the issue that we had last year was, but to the point where she wasn't only yelling at the kids, she would also yell at the parents. Like she had like several cases open, but somehow she finished the whole school year, and so that meant also that at the end of the day, when I picked up Paula, I would be greeted with a lot of shouting. Because she, she's like, you know, she's a good student. So she doesn't give the teacher any problems, but she basically just like absorbs everything that was going on in the classroom because there were kids who were, you know, like hitting or throwing chairs or, you know, that type of thing. And it never directly affected her. But at the end of the day, when I'm with her, it's like, oh, great. I get to carry this. (laughs) I get to hear Uh all of this. Mm-hmm. And Paula was pretty dysregulated, right? About having having witnessed that, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. So, so let's let's shift gears a little bit. Thank you for the background and the why we are here. <laughs> so, I, I mean, obviously, my daughter Karis is not in school, so I don't have direct experience with any of these systems. The experience that I have is through working with parents like you, through having attended school myself as a child, and through having done research on this topic. So, um, so I just wanted to sort of share a little bit of the research that I have found kind of generally on these behavior management systems to sort of ground us and, and help us understand what we're talking about. And then you have some questions for me about how can we exist within this system if, if this is the system we've decided to exist within. So, so I'll share a little bit about what I found. And the gist of it is that behavior management is sort of considered a, ma- a massive challenge in schools because, I mean, on the, on the children's side, the, the children who have these disciplinary issues tend to drop drop out, right? Or they're essentially forced out through suspensions, expulsions at much higher rates than their peers. And that's also correlated with really negative behavioral, social outcomes. Um, Disciplinary problems are also a massive driver of teacher burnout. And so when you survey new teachers who leave the field, the number one issue that they report is disciplinary issues in the classroom. And so we're, we're seeing an increasing trend toward these positive rewards because they make students want to willingly conform to the rules and that really reduces the disciplinary action, which is contributing to the teacher burnout. So 
There are three kind of major systems that I have found in that are broadly in use. And one of these is called uh, positive behavior interventions and supports. And that's called PBIS. And I think that's probably not the one that's in, in use at your school. It's a very American system. And of course, colonization ideas tend to spread. I think it's in use at like 25,000 schools in the US. It's federally funded. The state of Ohio requires its implementation on a statewide basis. And I think it's really important to note that positive doesn't mean sort of positive feelings and optimism and good behavior. It means these uh, approaches to changing behavior are based on rewards rather than uh, aversive practices and discipline and removing kids from the classroom. And so there's sort of some key components of a PBIS system. And, and the, the first thing that, that, that happens is this leadership team of a few staff members work together to define these three to five school-wide expectations of appropriate behavior that uh, that basically say, what is an ideal student? And very often it's some variation on be safe, be respectful, be responsible. And so, of course, this is adult defined. There's never any student input into what these expectations are. And it's really basically designed to create passive students. Um, it's socializing students into what is seen as a successful way of being in school as defined by majority white staff and as based on uh, sort of white ways of being in the world. And so once those expectations are defined, then the, the teachers actively teach those expectations to the students. And there's never any sort of evaluation of the adults uh, role in this. The adults' conduct and, and actions are always taken to be inherently reasonable. It's only the students' actions that are taken to be something that needs modification. And then, so once we've taught the students what is appropriate behavior, then we're monitoring them and acknowledging either verbally or with a token economy for students who are engaging in these behavioral expectations. And so, you know, there are videos available online that I will link to uh, in the episode page where you can see teachers doing this. And basically what they're doing is they're walking around the classroom saying, oh, thank you, you got your piece of paper out. Okay, uh, who has an answer to this question? Oh, thank you for putting your hand up, right? And what they're trying to do is to do like five thank yous and positive reinforcements for every infraction that they're catching. And so, you know, it sounds sounds kind of okay, right? It's, it's thanking them, it's positive. But again, what we're doing is we are monitoring students' behavior. We're generating a lot of data as well to mold students' behavior to comply with these norms that the adults have defined as the right ones. And when problem behaviors arise, we're going to correct those using behavioral consequences. And those start sort of small scale in the classroom uh, where we're, we're sort of filling out an incident report. And, you know, the most common ones are given are things like, you know, chronic refusal to follow directions. And then the irony to me is that the next step on the forum is we look for a possible motivation. Why is the student doing this? And then the next thing we do is issue the consequence. And it's like, if we understood why the child is doing this, why is the next step to issue a consequence? <laughs> why are we not using this information that we generate to say, how can we support you in being successful in the classroom rather than saying, go to the reflection room for 15 minutes and think about it, right? It's like a timeout. We know that no kid sits in timeout thinking how much better they can do when they come back. They sit in timeout thinking how unjust it is. 
And teachers will also uh, sort of manipulate this process as well based on what they've been told by the superiors and what supports they want in their classroom, right? So they might generate more incidents for a child if they think that they can then get a, a support person in the classroom for that child. They may generate fewer reports if they think that uh, they're going to get punished for generating reports because the school has a goal to reduce the number of reports. And so, you know, there's very little interaction with parents and guardians uh, who don't receive any training. And, you know, I've seen where where parents are involved in this process, particularly racialized parents, right? Parents who, who don't come from a Eurocentric background, their concerns can tend to be overridden by the white parents, the white staff who say, but, you know, this is data driven. We're generating data on this. This is real. We are seeing these things happening. And, uh, and, and it also kind of pushes us into, well, if there's data showing that this child is struggling, then we're moving into, um, you know, away, away from this sort of disorderly behavior label into a disordered behavior label, right? So it's the child who is disordered. So now we start considering diagnoses and sort of medicalizing the child's uh, responses. So that's sort of, you know, how, how PBIS works. And that's kind of a big one. And then the two other systems, which I'll describe in much, much less depth. Uh, the first is clip charts, which I think is what you saw in your classroom, <laughs> Diego's classroom. And basically, we it's a, a, a vertical chart. And we start out, every child starts out with a little clothes peg, their name written on it, and ready to learn. And ready to learn is sort of the middle point on that chart. And so everybody's name is clipped at that point on the chart. And if you get caught doing something good, you move up into good day, to great job, to outstanding, to those kinds of things. And if you do something the teacher disapproves of, you're moving down into think about it and teacher's choice and parent contact. And I've also heard of some systems where teachers will wear necklaces of pins around their necks of belonging to students who were so good they went off the charts. And if you, you can even get off the necklace and go up into a hairpin. <laughs> And some teachers will have like little sticky jewels that people, that the students can put on their pin to indicate that they ended up on the necklace or in the hair so that you can keep track longer term of how many times you went off the chart. And so you can use these systems as part of a PBIS system. And, and I think one of the things that I saw coming up over and over again is what students and parents call the walk of shame which is when the teacher says, okay, go and clip yourself down. And it's not the teacher that moves the clip, it's the student who has to walk from their seat to the board and remove their clip and move it down to the next level. And that that walk of shame is so humiliating because it calls attention to the thing that the child has done. And I will say on the flip side of that, that sometimes uh, kids don't want to be recognized for the quote unquote good things that they've done either, because they might get beaten up on the playground for that too, right? Sometimes calling positive attention to yourself marks you as sort of, you know, the class goody goody. And, um, and that doesn't always come with, with good attention either. So, so that's sort of the clip charts that I think you saw. And then in the US, I'm not sure if this is elsewhere yet, but there's a system called Class Dojo, which is basically like online. <laughs> yeah. And so you, uh, the, the teacher can do all of this and it can be done in a private way, right? So that on, only the teacher and the student and the student's parents are seeing 
the, the clipping and the rewards and punishments. I think it can also be done in a public way. And then Klaus Dojo also has this sort of parent communication aspect that can be separated, right? And, and I don't see a problem with that. There's no problem with using it as sort of a, just a, a way of communicating with parents about what's going on. Of course, there are other ways of doing that too. But the problematic aspect, of course, is the, you know, clipping up, clipping down, the rewards and the punishments as well. And of course, there's a lot of criticism of the ideas that these systems are based in. I mean, if we think about growth mindset, we're actively working against that. Everything Alfie Cohn has written ever <laughs> goes against all of this stuff. Self-determination theory, say that rewards destroy motivation to learn. And the vast majority of the studies that show that these systems are quote unquote successful are looking at the teacher's perspective, the school's perspective. Are we reducing the number of times students are referred to the office? Are we reducing suspensions, expulsions, those kinds of things? Very, very few studies ever ask children or parents how they feel about these systems. And so I did find a doctoral dissertation studying six children who basically had the same response that Diego had. They were completely confused about how the clip charts work, that the charts determine, uh, that actually the, the one the one thing that they think they seem to understand about it is that the charts say, well, this child is good and this child is bad, right? So we're, we're not just saying what they did was good or bad, but the students, from the student's perception, the chart is saying this child is good, this child is bad. And the teachers can be super inconsistent with how they use the charts, right? They might forget to clip somebody up or down, especially at the end of the day. And then they, the, the students reported that the clip charts really sort of report, they, I mean, they reported false accusations, the times when the teacher thought that they had done something wrong and actually their friend had done it and the teacher was just insistent, I don't care, go and clip yourself down. No room for self-advocacy, these feelings of shame and embarrassment, not being able to concentrate on learning because they're so terrified of getting clipped down, feeling like failures if they can't clip up. There's just constant social comparison of how am I doing? How's everybody else doing? Kind of looking for people who are doing worse than I am so I can feel better about myself and and really this sense of hopelessness when they're clipped down. So, you know, the, the few studies that I found that looked at what, how parents were thinking about it, what they've seen in their children and directly asking children themselves, by and large, did not find a very positive outcome. So I'm curious about how all well that's landing for you and, and what you've seen and how you're feeling about it with that new uh, information. Yeah, um, I'm just kind of trying to wrap my head around everything. But what I what I noticed with like the PBIS one that you shared, yeah. it kind of seemed like the teachers themselves are in rewards and punishments too, where like, you know, the reward is you get support in the classroom. The punishment is, I don't know what happens with teachers when they, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So it's, it's like not only is it on to the students, but it's on to the teachers as well and probably on to the schools. Yes. And, and that to me is sort of a big part of the challenge of these systems, right? It seems like the reward and punishment system that the teacher is using with the child is the problem, right? And if I could just get the teacher to use a different system, then my kid would have a better experience in school. When actually the entire system is coercive, in the US, teachers are, if their kids don't meet the required benchmarks the, in standardized testing, the teacher's job is at risk, for sure. 
And so if the teacher is unable to get their kids to, to pass those tests, then yeah, the, the punishment might be they don't have a job. And so when you look at it from that perspective, keeping the kids quiet in the classroom gives you a much better chance of getting the kids to learn something. I mean, that's what it seems like, right? How can they be learning something if they're rowdy and all over the place? They're going to learn something if they're quiet, ignoring the idea that maybe they're just sitting there terrified that they're going to get clipped down. And so the teacher is probably thinking, okay, I have a better chance of keeping my job if I can you know, keep, keep the kids quiet. And this is the best tool I know of to do that. So I guess my, from here, I'm just wondering, how do I foster my kids' intrinsic motivation considering all these extrinsic motivation that's happening in the classroom yeah i don't have an easy answer to that um the the study that i found that looked at what uh, parents thought of these behavior management systems it was reasonably large 90 parents right some of these more ethnographic studies look at just six kids something like that um so 90 parents is a slightly bigger sample size uh, the parents were filling out a series of questionnaires and it was really teacher support of children's autonomy that was the strongest predictor of children's autonomous motivation to learn which kind of makes sense right so if the if the teachers are saying you have some real choice in this then the children are more motivated to learn, to make choices to learn. And on the flip side of that, the behavior charts and the use of behavior charts were really significantly and negatively associated with this autonomous motivation to learn. And uh, the other very significant aspect was the parent-school relationships. And this idea that when parents trust the teacher and the school more, they find the the teachers are more supportive of autonomy more supportive of relatedness meaning like real connection with the children and that the child was really benefiting from that so this idea of, of supporting autonomy which i mean we have to acknowledge is really really difficult in a system where the teacher doesn't have very much autonomy where the teacher is told this is what you teach and this is how you teach it and you're going to make the kids pass these standardized tests right the teacher has very little autonomy in this system and so for a teacher to be able to somehow find space to grant children autonomy is really hard another aspect that came out was that rewards that were not logically related to learning were the most likely to decrease intrinsic motivation <laughs> There was one quote from a parent in that study who was talking about her child. She was just saying, he's motivated by feathers. <laughs> I guess the teacher was giving out feathers as a reward. <laughs> and so those kinds of completely unrelated, and I, I would probably put candy in that uh, in that bucket as well, right? There's really no connection between candy and learning are really the most likely to decrease children's intrinsic motivation to learn. And on the flip side of that, and I think this is particularly relevant to Polo, right? Sometimes we see as a parent reporting, well, the system works well for my child. And the researcher was saying, well, actually, this could be an example of introjection. And I didn't know what that word meant, so I looked it up. And it's the unconscious adoption of other people's ideas, right? So we're kind of taking on the teacher's ideas about what motivation is, about what it means to learn without actually thinking about them. And then it also can reflect this performance avoid goal orientation, which is a way of saying, I'm 
I'm going to do well because I, uh, I don't want the negative consequence that might come if I don't do well. And these are really not associated with the kinds of learning that we want children to be doing. They're much more associated with anxiety, with a really superficial processing of information. Um, we, what we do know is that meeting needs fosters intrinsic motivation, especially autonomy, especially competence, especially relatedness, right? Thinking about self-determination theory. And so, uh, so the, so the extent that we can really make genuine choices in the classroom, really foster children's ability to do work, to do it well, and to have genuine connections between the teacher and the, and the student, the better off we're going to be. And if those factors are lacking, then I would be looking at uh, this idea that, that came up in the No Self, No Problem episode, where we're kind of teaching the child what it's like to play the game, right? We're in the system, we're playing this game, we're invested enough so that we can get what we want out of it while knowing that it's still a game and our real interests and passions and work and the things that we really care about may lie outside of that system and we can follow those and, and learn about those as well. So when you mentioned playing the game, it kind of reminded me of something that happened or happens is happening with my son so he wore he went to school in a dress I think he's gone twice but ever since then he said that he doesn't want to go to school in a dress anymore because these people don't know that boys can wear dresses my favorite thing about the membership is the community being in community with other people that want to make positive changes you know based on their values for their family and helping all of us helping each other brainstorm ways to do that in specific situations is is really really beautiful it's such a gift and it's such a, a wonderful resource that i'm so glad that i have it's made all the difference my action group has been meeting for years now. We're fantastic friends and we all love coming to the call every week and catching up with each other and, and helping each other with our, with our approach. The parenting membership is now open for enrollment, but only until midnight Pacific on Wednesday, May 15th. We have sliding scale pricing and a 100% money back guarantee. Join now to get access to everything you need to make the change that you want to see in your family life at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash parenting membership. And so it's not, mm. you know, it's kind of like playing the game in the sense of like, like he's working with the system, but he also knows that that's not how things are or should be or can be. Yeah. Or, yeah. Right. Yeah. And that he can wear dresses outside of school to the playground in other places. Right. And, and it sucks that school is not a place where he feels comfortable wearing a dress. And also that's the system you're in. Yeah. What I wanted to, I kind of, I was like debating whether or not to interrupt you. You mentioned uh, self-determination theory when you mentioned all the different mm -hmm. needs. Could you say a yeah. bit more about what that is and how that would apply here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's basically the idea that uh, these these needs for autonomy, right, to make decisions that feel really important to us, for competence, to be able to do something well, and relatedness, to have connection with other people, are super important needs 
for, for many of us. And that the more those needs are met, the happier we are. <laughs> and of course, you know, in our work, we talk about a lot of other needs as well. And for some kids, there may be other needs that are even more important, right? Some kids have real sensory issues. And if those sensory needs are not met, then it, it doesn't matter what's going on with the other things. They're, those are overriding, right? And parenting beyond power talk about the, the cherry needs. And, and very often, autonomy, competence, relatedness are cherry needs. But sometimes other things uh, are there on the top of the cupcake too. And, and some of those, you know, get pushed down into the frosting. And then uh, there's all the, the other needs that we might be trying to meet in the cupcake. So it's it's really, can we see those happening on a regular basis in the environments that our, that our child is spending time in, at home, at school, in other places? And the more that they are, the more the child probably is getting the sense that I actually have agency in my life. I get to make decisions that feel really important to me. I get to, to really say what happens to me. And I feel really connected to other people and I'm enjoying and I can do and I'm good at the things that I'm that I'm doing on a regular basis. And we, we all tend to feel better when those when those things are in place. Uh, but of course, that's really hard in an environment where the teacher doesn't get to control very much. Right. The teacher has very little autonomy and where the teacher may feel so much pressure to meet the standardized testing requirements that it may seem like there's no time for connection, for relatedness. I don't have time to see who you really are as a person because you got to learn this math fact. And, and so we're pushing really hard on competence, on a particular kind of competence at the expense of the other two, by and large. Yeah. Well, I'm glad also you mentioned like meeting those three needs of autonomy, competence and relatedness outside of school. Because mm-hmm. when I was listening to you initially, I was like, and I was just thinking, like, how am I going to tell the teacher that she has to do this? Um, so <laughs> it's, it's helpful to know, like, you know, that I can do or I can support her yeah. in meeting all those needs outside of school. When you say her, you mean Paula? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And yeah. Okay, yes. <laughs> ideally, ideally, our homes are going to be a place where our children can have, you know, this this sense um, and have more of their needs met. And of course, this is not at the expense of your needs, right? That your needs matter too, and that we're continually having these conversations with our children when we're meeting both of our needs. Yeah. Yeah. But keeping in mind that you know they are in school for a big chunk of their their day. Yeah. So even yeah. if I am meeting all their needs outside of school. How do mm-hmm. I know or how do I even ensure that they then don't get burnt out? And how do I ensure that my child, that no, no, char- no harm comes to my child? <laughs> or like, um, what would be like the warning signs for me to be like, okay, this yeah. isn't working anymore for us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So taking the, you know, how do I ensure my child doesn't get burnt out? Obviously the, the ensuring part is really hard there. And, and I think it goes back to the a point that I mentioned earlier, which it seems like rewards and punishments are the problem, but they're not the real problem. The real problem is the power over a dynamic of school, where we're essentially training children that their ideas don't matter. And their only role is to memorize what they're told as fast as possible without causing any trouble for a teacher and for anyone else. And that if you deviate from that in any way, it is not the system's fault. It is your fault. It is you that has to change your behavior because the idea that there could be anything wrong with the system is just inconceivable. And so we're only looking at these observable behaviors. Um, if, if a child is, uh, you know, throwing something at another, at another child, if a child is refusing to do the work that they've been assigned, right? These are observable behaviors. 
and we're neglecting all of the cognitive, the emotional, the social capacities this child might have, um, as well as, you know, any racial, class, poverty-related issues. Uh, we're, we're essentially working within an ableist framework that says there's this really narrow set of behaviors that you have to comply with to be considered normal. And of course, these are normal by white cultural standards. And we're kind of pathologizing this unwanted behavior. And of course, unwanted by whom? It's kind of you know, unstated. It's just this neutral, unwanted behavior. It's not the child who doesn't want this behavior, right? It's the adults who are seeing uh, this unwanted behavior in tier one, uh, or um, yeah, tier one of uh, PBIS. And we move up to tier two, where it's like, okay, things are getting bad. We call it problem behavior. And then it becomes sort of this behavioral disability and over-representing boys and children of color, sometimes calling them tier two kids, special ed kids trauma kids. And so, you know, when we're, we're thinking about how do I prevent my kid from getting burnt out? I don't know that we can prevent that. Yes, there are warning signs that we can look out for. And I would say, you know, some of those warning signs would be when you see the kinds of behaviors that students are getting punished for doing. So your child starts to act out as well. And because these, these kinds of behaviors are very often protesting behaviors from students, they, right? They, they don't have the language to be able to say, this feels unjust. This doesn't feel right for me. Uh, this, is a, this is a protest behavior, but it's perceived as unwanted behavior, as problematic behavior. So, um, so if we're seeing that kind of behavior, then we know the system is not working for the child. And uh, Dr. Carla Shalaby talks about how this is sort of the canary in the coal mine, right? We can see these misbehaving students as the canary who's saying, hey, this system isn't working for anyone. Uh, and we're all going to get poisoned eventually. I'm just the one who's getting shoved down there first into the mine. And I'm the one who's feeling the effects first. So there's that aspect, I would say. Another aspect is when your child stops protesting systems that they perceive as unjust in other places. So maybe when they were a child, they might have protested when you kind of steamrolled them into doing something that you wanted them to do. And then eventually over time, they stopped doing that, right? And, and I can imagine that could sort of look like success. It's like, oh, thank goodness, that is easier now. <laughs> My child doesn't protest this anymore. But is it? are they not protesting because their need is met or are they not protesting because they've given up, right? That's a really, really important distinction to make. And so I would definitely be looking for, okay, you're, you're doing this and you're, you know, you're, you're doing it, but are you doing it willingly? And I think back to a time a couple of years ago when I asked Karis to go and take a shower and she, she said, okay. And she walked off to the, towards the shower and her head is down and her shoulders are slumped and she's walking really slowly. And I called her back and I said, Hey, Karis, can you come here? And she sat on my lap and I said, you know, I asked you to take a shower and you were going to do it, but it doesn't seem as though you really wanted to. What's, can you tell me what's going on? And she said, I wanted you to wash my hair, right? She had a need for connection and she, I, I guess, didn't think that she could articulate that and didn't think that I would meet that need of hers. So she was going to walk off towards the shower unwillingly, right? Against what she really wanted. And I said, you know, it's, it's always okay to ask. Some, sometimes I may say no, right? I may set a boundary and say, I have a need for rest right now and I'm going to prioritize that and I'm not available to help you wash. But whenever I can, I will, I will do that for you. And I always want you to, to ask 
And so looking out for those signs that our child is feeling steamrolled into doing something, right? That we're just kind of running roughshod over what their needs are um, is, is another thing I would be looking out for. And then from the research, I mean, I really saw it as a red flag when the, the children seem to be more focused on the behavior management system than on the learning, right? When you ask, how was school today? And they say, oh yeah, so-and-so got clipped up and so-and-so got clipped down and we all lost recess and, and I got a candy. And, and if all of what you're hearing about from school is the behavior management system then, and, and nothing about what they're actually supposed to be learning, then I would consider that to be a red flag. But I will also say that that seems to be incredibly common. So how red flaggy that is, right, is sort of maybe when you stop hearing anything about learning and they seem to be very much ruminating on how things are doing in the behavior management system is when it's it's very, very, very big, big red flaggy. I would even consider a big focus on the, uh, the reward and punishment system rather than learning, even if it doesn't feel very like, you know, it's not anxiety inducing to the child. I would personally consider that a red flag. But of course, if they're feeling anxious about it, then that's a big red flag. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm kind of hearing... Because I was thinking like, okay, I'll know like when they don't want to go to school or when they always have stomach aches, <laughs> that will be a very easy warning sign. But it sounds like mm-hmm. it can, like that would be like a very kind of not late, but like, you know, there would have been other warning signs before yeah. that. But listening yeah. to you, it's like, well, that's, I would say most of the conversation when I ask them about school, most of the things I get are that are, I got a sticker. I got more going to get candy. I didn't get a sticker from, from Diego. I have heard at least some things that he's learning about the universe, Mm -hmm. but from Paula, I have no idea what's going on in Paula's classroom aside from. Yeah. Cause Diego is not as far into it as Paula is. Yeah. Right. He's a, he's a year behind. And so or two years behind. Yeah. So isn't as deep into the system yet. And yeah, school refusal obviously is a is is a very major red flag of something is not working. And I mean, at that point, it just seems like the challenge is how do I get my kids to want to go to school, or at least to stop protesting going to school. And it's, in my mind, the real challenge is why is the child resisting going to school? What aspect of their probably autonomy, competence, relatedness is not being met, or as, as well potentially some of their other needs as well? And we tend not to think about that because it because the challenge seems to be you know just how do I get my kids to start protesting this thing when of course they're protesting because the system is not meeting their needs yeah but then the question then would be like if if I'm seeing it with them but like no one else seems to mind and like the teacher thinks mm-hmm. they're doing an incredible job by promoting like Indiago's with Diego's teacher, she was telling the parents, like, you know, when they come and they have the sticker, you should really tell them how happy you are. And, you know, like, let's, let's really continue this reward where not only did you get like, the, the teacher praising you, but let's have all the parents like do a happy dance for you as well. And, you know, not, no, no one said anything. I don't know what they yeah. were thinking because I also didn't say anything. And I was definitely not in agreement, but from the experience that I've had with other parents with things about this, they're like, Oh, I don't see, I don't see it. I, like, you know, I don't think it's so bad because it like, helps them learn. Right. 
And I'm thinking about a post that you put up in our circle community uh, a few weeks ago and member Anne responded with a, a really beautiful, elegant response. And uh, one of her points was, you've told us that a lot of the parents in this school are immigrant parents, right? And the idea of giving them the benefit of the doubt in terms of why they're supporting the current approach, because racialized people are almost never given the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and so just doing that is an anti-racist act. And so maybe these parents are saying, well, if this system wasn't in place, then perhaps my uh, student wouldn't, you know, my child wouldn't know what are the parameters for good behavior and bad behavior. And the teacher might be arbitrarily handing out uh, rewards and punishments. And my student, my child would get punished more often under that system than they do under this system. We could also acknowledge that maybe the system in a way could serve to restrain the teacher, right? I've been doing a lot of workshops over the last few weeks, both with parents and with teachers in preschools. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard the idea that many teachers go into teaching to try to heal from trauma that they have experienced as children. And so if we've got teachers who are basically teaching from a place of the trauma that they've experienced without a framework around it, it's possible that the punishments could end up being more severe than they are right now with this framework. So, that, so that's another aspect of it. it. Also, with many cultures around the world, there's a, a value of listening to your elders, right? Of paying attention, of this, this cultural value of, you know, if a person's older than you, then we respect them. It, also a culture of doing well in school as a ticket to success, as a ticket out of the hardship that we have faced. And so, so I think all of those can be in play. There are some researchers who argue, and there's, there's the most research on PBIS. Actually, it's, it's bizarre that there is no research whatsoever on clip chart systems. It was developed randomly by some guy who decided that this would be a cool way of motivating kids who didn't do any research himself. And there's been no research done on it since. They actually saw an email from him to a researcher saying, yeah, I'm not aware of any research. And that was a few years ago. And I did some, some, you know, looking myself and couldn't find any either. So most of the research is on PBIS and what they, some of these researchers are arguing is essentially that we're kind of inculcating these racialized students into white ways of being in the world, which in some ways is what these, some of these parents want, right? They want their children to be successful in a white supremacist culture, but we're kind of doing it under this veneer of it being scientifically validated because it is, it's scientifically validated at reducing the number of you know, office referrals and that kind of thing, which the parents may see as success, right? If there's less disciplinary action, that means my child must be learning something. And it makes PBIS look really neutral because it seems like there's these criteria that are used to justify a teacher's action, but actually the teacher can turn a blind eye to one thing. And for other kids, they, you know, I've seen it described as I have the paperwork ready, <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm, I'm already ready to refer this child to, to the next level. And the teachers very often are not taking cultural factors into account. So, um, in one paper, I read that, you know, black, black students may try to what's called gain the floor, right? To enter the conversation through personal assertiveness rather than waiting for the teacher, the authority figure to grant them permission. And this is culturally appropriate, but perceived as disrespectful by a white teacher. And so I think, you know, to come back to your question of what should 
should I do if it seems like everybody else is on board with the system is to to recognize our place in systems of power, right? And and I know that you are you're an immigrant from the Philippines. You also speak obviously excellent English. You grew up going to private schools, and so your privilege is much different from people who have just come over here who are working five jobs, right, for a better life. And so your place of privilege in your culture is more in, in Spanish culture is more similar to mine in the US. And I think that there is a real danger that we can go in and say, well, you know, this is a crummy system and we're going to stop using it because I, I think it's terrible for my child and it's terrible for your children. And I, I know what's best for you. And so it is possible that 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 could result in unintended outcomes, unintended negative outcomes for for these racialized students. Um, and so I guess I would be trying, and I know you have tried to have conversations with other parents about this and that you don't seem to be making much headway. Um, and, and also trying to have conversations with the teacher. Um, and, and I think there's a real knack to doing that. Uh, and it's, it's not easy and it's not a core skill of mine to, to have these really delicate conversations with other people to say, you know, I'm, I'm seeing that this doesn't fit with my values. And I understand that you have different values and, you know, are you interested in trying to change this system that seems to be hurting our children, but I know that you can, you see it in a different way. Um, how, how does that resonate with what you've been trying to do and, and where you might go? Yeah, it's they're very difficult conversations. So it's it's the fact of like not even being able to explain it myself in English, and then having to then talk about it in Spanish, or in the case of other Filipinos where their Spanish isn't so good and their English isn't so good. So we're there trying to like communicate with three languages because my Tagalog mm-hmm. isn't very good. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. It's hard. Yeah. And what we're also seeing, at least in this particular school, where it's hard to just even get the parents involved. Like, it's hard not only to have the conversation, like to actually make the conversation happen, but it's hard to be, to have the opportunity to do so. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to push back on that a little bit. This idea of getting the parents involved. I see that a lot, uh, particularly it, it's sort of this I- an idea that um, white parents and white teachers in the U.S. say a lot about racialized parents. And I think what we're seeing is that they don't get involved in the ways that we think of as being involved, right? And I'm thinking about a, a case study of an immigrant family working three jobs and uh, supervising reading while like doing laundry at the end of the day, right? And, you know, 10 ten- at night and you're listening to your kid read while you're doing laundry trying to get ready for the next day because you've been working all day and to the school and to the white parents who are showing up volunteering in the classroom that looks like not involved and also right for for those parents who attended school very often there is trauma they experience trauma in schools every time they walk into their child's school some of that comes back to them i read another case study of a school that put a display of students work in a super market where the families from the school shopped really often and this one family i think it was in england uh, this family of of indian origin took 
all their different family members five different times to go and see this display of their child's work in the supermarket because that felt really accessible, right? It was a place that they were comfortable, whereas the school is a place where they did not feel comfortable at all. And so I think we really need to sort of, when we say, you know, the parents aren't involved, we need to be much more critical of how we're thinking about that and how we're perceiving involved and that that is very much dependent on sort of dominant culture, Eurocentric standards of what it means to be involved at school. Yeah, no, that's very true, especially for the case of this school where, you know, you do have parents who have to kind of like quickly drop off their kids because then they have to go to work or like, you know, their their concerns are basically like, what's the longest time I can have my kids here because I need to work and I don't have anyone else to care for them. That being said, it's still also really hard if you if like for us, you know, like we started like a parents association last year and it's just like and we're very we're very like mindful of what are the needs of the school, what are the needs of the families of the school, not, you know, what do we want? Like we're very mindful of that. And at the same time, I guess instead of saying that they're not involved, I guess I should have said more like, I don't know how to reach them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'd be looking at what are the kinds of barriers that are preventing them from, right, being involved, being reached. Is it that there's no childcare available at the, you know, when, when you're meeting? And so they can't come because they don't have anyone else to watch the kids. Um, is it because the buses stop running at a certain time at night? And so they can't physically make it because they don't drive? Uh, is it because they feel intimidated by stepping into the school and you could have it at a community center or somewhere else, right? So that that is is more accessible. Really working to understand what are the real barriers to this and working to address those to the extent that you can is sort of best practice for what I've seen for how to actually be able to work with people from, from many different kinds of communities uh, who, who really do care about their children's learning. I mean, that that is not a question yeah. I guess it's like listening to you and it's and it goes back to like my need for ease where it's like okay I'm doing this hard thing um mm-hmm. can I just have some things to be easy while I step out of my comfort zone in you know figuring out what are the needs of these families how can I meet their needs like how can I encourage them into this group that we're making and, you know, one way that it would be really easy if if when I pick up my kid from school, I'd, I'm not met with um, her letting everything out. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, when I was thinking about, OK, where where could we go from here? It would be easy to leave at this point and say, yes, these systems suck. <laughs> but where could we go from here? And to me, it's it's fairly clear where we want to be. The path to getting to getting to that point is much less clear to me, right? Where we want to be is in a culture where we do have autonomy, connectedness, and competence in the classroom on a regular basis. And and I see that referred to in a couple of different ways. You know, creating a, a classroom culture of care is how Nell Noddings used to talk about it. Um, Carla Shalaby talks about, uh, you know, a, a culture of love. And so that we're seeing these unwanted behaviors as a real symbol of unmet needs, right? And PBIS gets us so tantalizingly close, right? It's, <laughs> it's so frustrating to look at that form and see you're identifying why the child might be doing this thing, and then you're doubling out a consequence instead of addressing that challenge. 
So you're looking at these consequences, or, or sorry, the, um, the the needs that are underlying the behavior. You are uh, looking outside the classroom as well, right? What's happening in, in the child's community, in the broader community? Are they feeling afraid because of things that are happening in the world? And all of that is affecting how they show up in the classroom. What, what kinds of feelings and needs are really behind these behaviors? And then working to meet those needs, right? And many times it's not so difficult right? It's a need to move in the classroom that I can learn while I'm moving. Or, um, you know, I've read of some autistic kids who like to lie on the floor and they're not making eye contact. And so the teachers are like, they're not learning. Well, actually, you know, for these kids, that that is how they learn best. So can we see that not as an act of defiance, but as a tool that can be used to promote learning? And so we're we're trying to meet the child's needs because we care about them so much. And also we care about the teacher, right? You express this real desire for ease, right? You just have a need for ease. So does the teacher. <laughs> and I'm wondering, is there a way that you can work to understand the teacher's need, right? How can we, what are some of the ways that we can make the classroom an easier place for the teacher to be in? Because it is possible that if that teacher's need is met more of the time, that they will be able to then have the capacity to be with our children in a way that sees their needs as well. And so that that's where I was thinking, and, you know, this isn't scientifically validated. There's no study of, you know, 50 families who have done this, and this is the most effective way. But if we truly believe that needs underlie all behavior, then working to understand other people's needs is and try to meet those needs is always the path forward. So can we understand more about that teacher's needs and get to know that teacher as a real person, right? Promoting that connectedness, supporting them in finding ease in the classroom, in, you know, maybe there are financial concerns for many teachers in the US who buy their own supplies, right? Can, can we raise some money to buy some of the supplies that creates financial ease for the teacher? So the, things like that, so that when more of their needs are met, then maybe they have the capacity to see and meet more of our child's needs as well, which gets us towards at least heading in the direction of this community of care, this community of love in the classroom. Okay. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I guess what I was hoping when I, re- when I wrote that question was like, just make it go away. <laughs> just make this thing go away. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> unsurprisingly, yeah. that was not the answer I got. <laughs> You didn't really hope that, did you? <laughs> or you didn't really think that was the answer you get? Um, no. Well, I, I honestly, what I thought I would get was like, have a problem conversation with your child, and then I was like, but the problem's not with my child. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, which is why that can't be. Yeah. Right. The path forward. Yeah. Yeah, and so what I'm hearing is have a problem solving conversation with the teacher if. You know, the teacher is able and willing and open and to do so. Yeah. And and maybe that starts by, you know, just spending a little bit more time with them and budgeting an extra five minutes or so at pickup time to be able to actually check in and, and as and as well as talking about your child, just ask genuinely, how are you doing? Right? What kind of feel hard at the moment? How can I help you? What what kind of support do you need? And we have to acknowledge, right, you are a person who has capacity to do this. 
And we are people of privilege. And that I see is our role to take on, right? It is to work to use our privilege and our capacity to be able to support folks so that they can then, I mean, probably this, these systems are not well aligned with the teacher's values either, right? By and large, teachers want autonomy for themselves. They want autonomy for their students. I've met so many amazing teachers who are stuck within this system. So this is, this is not the teacher's fault. And the more that we can uh, support the teacher meeting their needs, probably the more they're, they're going to be able to come towards their child. Okay. And so let's say that I have left my comfort zone and made some chit chat with the teacher in the morning. Uh-huh. Um, you know, as you know, chit chat is not a strong point of mine. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so we, and so we do have this kind of like rapport going on where I am like yeah. attempting to understand her needs and help her meet them. How right. do I then explain to the teacher that what's going on in the classroom is affecting my children, even though what they might see are like perfectly behaved kids who get stickers and stamps and candy. Right. I don't know that you do explain it. <laughs> I totally acknowledge that firstly, what your your child, your, your teacher may not see a problem with your child's behavior. And when I was doing some reading, I found an epigraph at the beginning of a paper by Dr. Joshua Bornstein. And uh, the epigraph said, if they're on tier one of the pyramid, right, which is the bottom of the pyramid, where they're uh, basically just getting mostly rewards, very few punishments, um, they're behaving, they're getting the work done. There are really no concerns with a child that we can see, right? And so I think that basically reflects Paolo's experience, that as long as everything looks okay from the outside, there is no problem here as far as the school is concerned. And so so I think we have to acknowledge that. I'm I'm wondering if maybe the some some sort of journaling could help where you've, you know, you talk with the teacher about what Paula's day has been like. You're also obviously talking with Paula and you are maybe keeping track of, you know, today somebody was clipped down and Paula seemed to take it really hard and then had a meltdown. Right. And and sort of generating data in a way to say, you know, these are the connections that I'm seeing between some of these ideas. But ultimately, the teacher firstly may not care, secondly, may not be willing or able to do anything about this, right? Because if our primary goal is behavior management, then she's succeeding in Paula's case, because Paula is is doing the things that she's supposed to be doing. And so, uh, so I, I, explaining things to people almost never changes their mind. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the research on the handout that, that I have prepared that you can download from the episode page uh, may help with this, right? It, it is a form of explaining, but ultimately it really comes down to what are the teacher's needs? And if the teacher's needs are not being met, then they are probably going to keep using these systems. And the more that we can meet the teacher's needs, the more they may be open to considering meeting other people's needs as well. And so you may decide that the easiest path is to do nothing, right? To to not try to change the system. That is a legitimate choice. It is. I think it's also like, what would be my definition of change the system? Like, I'm not expecting big things here like i'm not you know but it does like i mentioned how this is not an experiment but it does feel like an experiment where we're my family we're going out of like the the path that you know the easy path we could take of like just bring them to a school that's a bit farther away where you know most 
other families we know bring their school to where we would you know still be able to pat ourselves on the back for bringing our kids to public school where there are also other families from outside of Spain and not have like this question of is this this is a, co a choice that we very consciously made that is aligned with our values and at the same time like I'm not as concerned now because they're younger but like let's say that they're towards the end of primary how do I know that like this wasn't a mistake that there's you know yes like I didn't let them down yeah I mean you never you never can that that's the essential challenge in parenting right is you can never know that the decision you made is the right one all you can do is make decisions that are best aligned with your values i have a couple of sort of anic data points <laughs> there's no data on this <laughs> um, and i have to say that the vast majority of eurocentric parents would not make the decision that you made right that that would uh just say i'm, I'm gonna go with the quote-unquote better school and so I have read in a book that I have at home that I don't have with me right now <laughs> about a parent who put their child in a high school. It was, you know, we could describe as very similarly. It was in the U.S. to the school that you're in. And the children thanked them for doing it because they learned how to get on with people of many, many different backgrounds. And yes, they probably didn't learn as much, right? They didn't get to as many advanced placement classes. But... When I talked to Dr. Peter Gray, who is a big advocate for self-directed learning, he was a, a psychology professor. He authored one of the seminal psycho intro to psychology textbooks, which I think is how, you know, basically now pays him to, <laughs> to do the work that he does. And he said, we, we just assume that everybody's coming in with basically no skills. We start from scratch because we can't assume that people are coming in with you know, with, with real skills. And so an absence of skills may not be the most terrible thing in the world, firstly. So there's there's that aspect of it. On the flip side of that, I will say I have heard more sort of anecdata case studies of children of these so-called, you know, woke white parents who put their child in a school with, um, I mean, it, you know, in a US context, it was probably a white parent in a majority black school. And uh, the child saying, you know, I got beaten up all the time. And uh, ended up as they grew up into adults really resenting their parents from putting them in this you know integrated environment um so 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 i don't think there's an easy answer for either side of that perspective but i guess what i will offer is that things may not be so terribly different in the school that you know that you might go to instead and so it, it's not that the children are going to be controlled less. It's that the methods of control are going to be different. They're going to be more subtle. There's going to be yes, less yelling and being told what to do and more, you know, even more rewarding and probably some shaming, some humiliation for not complying with what we're calling school values, right? Which are neutral. They're determined by administrators, by teachers. <laughs> And so, so it's a more subtle way of, of basically, right, getting children to comply with what the adults want. Um, but I will say, you know, we're, I'm, we're talking to you from Seattle right now. And, uh, Karis and I volunteered at a community garden here in Seattle a couple of weeks ago. And it happens to share space with a private school. And there's a playground behind the school. And Karis wanted to take a break from the volunteering and go and play on the playground. And it was a weekday. And the kids were cycling through their uh, playtimes. And, and there was one set of kids that came out and one of the teachers like basically took on the role of yelling at the kids 
export every single thing they were doing that wasn't, you know, according to school values. So stop playing with that bike. That's not a school toy. You know, yelled across, how many times do I have to tell you that? And then uh, there were other kids playing with a jump rope. And over and over and over again, the teacher is, um, you know, stop using that jump rope unless you're using it for jumping. We talked about this last week. And I said to Karis afterwards, right, what do you think she meant by that? You know, we talked about this last week. And she said, probably the teacher told the kids last week that it was not okay to do this. I'm guessing it wasn't a conversation. And I said, I think you're probably right. So, um, so, so just because you're in this other school doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to be dramatically different, that the methods may be a bit different, but ultimately they may not. Um, and so I guess, I would be kind of curious to hear whether you've talked with Paula about your values um, and understood what her values are and whether she has ideas about which school she wants to attend and what she thinks about the school that she's at right now and the school that, that many of her peers went to. Yeah. Well, I will say before I answer your question about Paula was I was talking with a friend about this. So another friend who we brought our kids to the same school at the same time. And we're always kind of like checking with each other. Like, how are you doing? You know, are you going to leave <laughs> us? And I told her because there is one other friend who is quite concerned about like the low academic level of the school. And I told I told her quite frankly that what I would want for my kids is not going to be available in any public school. Yeah. Yeah. or any or most schools period like and most private schools right the, the i mean this private school that we were observing the volunteer coordinator said yeah the parents here pay like 20 grand a year for for tuition and and what they're getting is somebody yelling at their kids in in the playground yeah so i do when i when i kind of notice my brain spiraling down that that i do also recognize like okay it's not it could be anywhere I just want to shout out to Jen, to your Parenting Mojo team, and to all of the members. I am so grateful that we get to be doing this work together. I am so much more comfortable with the person that I am today. And I am so much more content because I know that I have this community that is there to support me and to really just allow me to be me. The parenting membership is now open for enrollment, but only until midnight Pacific on Wednesday, May 15th. We have sliding scale pricing and a 100% money back guarantee. Join now to get access to everything you need to make the change that you want to see in your family life at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash parenting membership. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, we could be paying a fortune. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, let these this way, it's free. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. But that 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 goes into a whole other conversation. So when it comes to talking with Paolo, we have kind of mentioned that, like, she has said how she hasn't gotten very good teachers. Mm. She has said that, and we have talked about, you know, what does that mean? And and that whole thing. We we have mentioned, you know, how we specifically chose the school for them because I don't remember what we said, but we, we have mentioned it. I haven't asked her like what she thinks of it. I don't think I have, but I do know that she does like going to school and that she doesn't want to change school. 
Diego, on the other hand, is, well, he's much better now. He has gone through, he has stopped his face of, I don't want to go to school anymore. I've been to school so many days. <laughs> I think he has formed, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think he has formed an attachment with his teacher. So he has been, mm. he has been enjoying that more. Anything else you want to ask or say to feel complete? in the conversation, which I know didn't end up where you were hoping, but <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it was helpful. I think what I'm kind of going to take away out of everything that we've talked about is really the needs part of autonomy, competence yeah. and relatedness to just keep that in mind. Yeah. And I think that's really the key, right. Um, to, to everything <laughs> is, is those needs as potentially sort of cherry on top of the cupcake needs, but also just seeing behavior as an expression of needs. And that when we can support a child in meeting that need, then they may stop doing the unwanted behavior, which also potentially has the effect of meeting the teacher's need as well. So, um, so yeah, really advocating for our children from that place of, I think my child has a need for this. And, um, and I can think of these five ways that we could meet that need. Would any of them also meet your need for ease and for peace and harmony in the classroom and, and making sure the other children are learning? Then we actually start to move gently and slowly towards a culture of care. Yeah, so... Uh, so thank you for <laughs> being willing to explore this with us in a, in a very public way. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for going through all my questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so um so listeners can find all of the resources that i dug into the papers that i looked at for this episode as well as that one pager that does kind of outline many of the issues that we talked about today in a, a simple format that's easy to digest and also includes the peer references if you want to dig deeper and all of that is at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash reward and punishment Hi, this is Jess from Rural East Panama. I'm a Your Parenting Mojo fan, and I hope you enjoy this show as much as I do. If you found this episode especially enlightening or useful, you can also donate to help Jen produce more content like this and also save us from those interminable mattress ads. Then you can do that and also subscribe on the link that Jen just mentioned. And don't forget to head to yourparentingmojo.com to record your own message for the show. 